0: The time is now 6 p.m. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, November the 22nd, 2023. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. In tonight's news, Madison Alders voted last night to double the maximum height for housing in an undeveloped downtown lot.
0: Two youth outreach organizers discuss the importance of unity and political engagement.
1: And in the second half, a local fine artist discusses his past fundraising efforts, the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves, and Madison's response to JFK's assassination 60 years ago today.
0: Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening.
1: In last March, the federal government stopped providing extra food share benefits. This means that the demand for food from donation centers and pantries has increased significantly. The rising need means that volunteer help is indispensable. Amanda Farendorf, Senior Communications Assistant for the Milwaukee Kinship Food Center, tells NPR they've seen 160% more families in need since March. The number of requests for home deliveries has also increased, meaning that the need for volunteers is that much greater.
0: On Monday, a, the vote on a casino deal between the Menominee Tribe and the Kenosha City Council was deferred. That's after some members expressed concerns that there is a, quote, lack of information surrounding the casino's possible development. This is the second time the Menominee Tribe has attempted to create a casino, the first being in 2015. Former Governor Scott Walker denied that request. This time around, they partnered with Hard Rock International for a $360 million proposal downsized from the $800 million version in 2015. The community simply isn't behind the project, though initial projections say the casino could employ around 1,000 full-time workers with salaries averaging $20 an hour. The casino would also provide funding for area schools, museums, and more. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, members of the community expressed worries about loiterers, safety, and drops in property value. The vote, regarding the, an uh, excuse me, the vote regarding an intergovernmental agreement with the Menominee Tribe is set to take place with the full council on January 3rd.
1: Earlier this week, Cassian town officials pushed back against the <coughs> development of a 36-bed Native Youth Treatment Center. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the officials stated that they were concerned about the proposed center's solar panels, which could cause difficulties for firefighters in the case of an emergency. Officials also say that the facility could bring down property values nearby. Members of the Great Lakes Intertribal Council, including the CEO, voiced suspicions that these concerns stem from racial bias. According to the Journal Sentinel, attendees at a town meeting this summer heckled the council's CEO, Brian Brainbridge, with racist remarks. The project cannot move forward without the town council's approval
0: and here's your hunting report the opening weekend deer kill which increased by 14 percent in 2022 has dropped 16 percent in 2023 experts speculate that the lack of snow cover caused the drop since deer are much easier to spot of course against a white background Bad news for Midwest hunters. El Niño is expected to overlap with northern winter the northern winter months this year and as a result, the snowless conditions are likely to continue along with hunting struggles caused by weather. Hunting accidents are also on the rise. This past weekend, a 65-year-old hunter accidentally shot a woman from his car, which he was legally able to do due to a disability. The woman was walking her dog on private property and the hunter mistook the dog for a deer, accidentally shooting the woman instead. The woman was taken immediately to, uh, to a hospital by a med flight and is still undergoing treatment. The hunter is currently under investigation.
1: Madison is set to use $11.3 million on five housing projects, including 300 low-income units. On Tuesday, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and five city council members introduced the proposal to utilize funds from the Affordable Housing Fund. The housing units affected by this decision are the Neighborhood House Apartments on the near west side and the Ellis Park Apartments, University Park Commons 2, the Yellowstone Apartments, and Merchant Place Apartments. The council will make their final decision regarding the funding on December 5th.
0: Madison residents have protested the F-35 Fighter jets for years now. In fact, complaints about noise levels and impacts on the environment have remained near constant since Madison's Truax Field became a training site. Now, residents in the surrounding areas have begun to experience another nasty side effect of the jets physical reactions. A man whose home is located close to the Dane County Regional Airport related to the Capitol Times instances in which he would experience painful surges as planes passed overhead. Other residents stated they spent less time outside because of the planes. There are even concerns the planes could cause hearing loss if people are repeatedly exposed to their noise. Earlier this year, the Air National Guard received a grant to study the noise effects of the jets, but the study is on hold for the time being.
1: Following the announcement on Tuesday that Mary Botari will be stepping down, Mayor Rhodes-Conway has appointed Deputy Mayor Sam Munger to be the next Chief of Staff. Since being appointed in 2019, Botari has assisted in the launch of the Community Alternative Response Emergency Services, or CARES, program, and has helped lead Madison through many culturally defining periods of time, such as COVID-19. When speaking to the Wisconsin State Journal, Mayor Rhodes Conway expressed her deep gratitude towards Botari and her work over the years. Sam Munger has served as interim deputy mayor since May. Before that, he worked as a policy advisor for Governor Evers, advising on issues from climate to elections. Before that, he was employed at the Center on Wisconsin Strategy at UW-Madison. Munger is set to succeed Botari at the end of this year.
0: And those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Last night, the Common Council voted to allow buildings up to 10 stories on an undeveloped lot just a few blocks from the Capitol. They're hoping to use the city-owned land to build more affordable housing. Our reporter and producer, Faye Parks, has the details.
2: In a 14-5 to 5 vote, Madison's Common Council agreed to increase the maximum height for any buildings developed on Brayton lot. That comes just a week after the Plan Commission's 5 to 1 vote recommended that the council adopt the zoning amendment. The city-owned lot, located just blocks from Capitol Square, is currently being used as a staging area in the ongoing Bus Rapid Transit project. But once the site has served its purpose, the city will begin to review proposals from contractors to develop housing there, and their priority is to add more affordable units to the market. Alder M.G.R. Govindarajan of the West Side sponsored the approved amendment. He says a potential 10-story building would not obstruct views of the Capitol. The previous zoning for the site, which only allowed building heights about half of the new maximum, was established in an effort to preserve a nearby historic district. Just so there's that step back between a tall building and then that four-story and then the lower residential neighborhood, which is the first settlement neighborhood. Janelle Allen lives in the First Settlement District and expressed her concerns during last night's meeting. She says the city is breaking its own promises by increasing the maximum building height.
3: It's only been 11 years since you folks passed a law to protect the First Settlement. Seems pretty short order to be deciding only 11 years later that it's time to change those rules.
2: Allen, along with numerous other speakers, also speculated that taller buildings would be less cost-effective. That's because the necessary materials, like steel and concrete, are more expensive than wood. But Matt Wachter, the executive director of the city's housing authority, says that as building height increases, the burden of material costs decreases
4: what we hear from developers is when you get you know past 10
0: stories you don't have to invest another dollar in land say or you know you your parking built so that's where you're really getting those efficiencies is that you're getting more more housing on the on what you paid for for land
2: and leo strand a uw madison student says that the need for affordable housing is dire
0: think of the the young people
3: moving in not even young just people because right now as much as I would love to stay in Madison, as much as I love the, the community I've met, in every like, logical way, it makes sense for me to go to the Twin Cities or another big you know, metropolis because it's expensive here and I, I don't really see a lot of change that would benefit me. And I think this is an amazing opportunity that we really can't pass up.
2: Justice Castaneda is the executive director of Commonwealth Development, a local nonprofit that promotes access to affordable housing and home ownership. He also attended last night's meeting and says the project would only benefit from an increased maximum height.
5: In very simple terms, the two main things that affect the
0: capacity or ability to create affordability are acquisition costs and density or the number of units you can put on a site. The general geography of the site, I think there's so much to be said about why it's important to maximize density when you can.
2: Alder Mike Verveer, who represents the district where Brayton Lot is located, voted against the increased maximum height. He was joined by Alder's Nasra Waheli of the Far West Side, Barbara Harrington McKinney of the Far West Side, Isidore Knox Jr. of the South Side, and Marsha Rummel of Downtown Madison. Earlier in the meeting, Alder Rummel introduced an amendment to limit the site's maximum to six stories instead, but it did not pass. In the coming months, the City of Madison will issue a request for proposals from contractors. And... Because Brayton Lott is city-owned land, they will have the final say on what proposal is ultimately selected. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks.
0: The time is now 6.16 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: Just days after neo Nazis marched through the city, WORT news producer Faye Parks spoke with two youth outreach organizers in the Madison area. Masood Akhtar is the president and founder of We Are Many United Against Hate, a nonprofit that organizes events to combat bigotry and racism. Steve Porter is a member of United Against Hate's advisory board and the president of the Madison Lawyers Chapter of the American Constitution Society. Together, they discussed the ways in which youth outreach can foster unity everywhere.
2: Thank you for joining me, Masood.
6: Yeah, thank you for inviting us. I appreciate it very much.
2: And Steve, thank you for joining us as well.
3: It's good to be with you.
2: So to start, Masood, could you tell us more about your organization, We Are Many, United Against Hate? What is your movement's primary goal?
6: My main goal is to build unity in classrooms and communities in a nonpartisan way. So I started this movement back in 2016 where I received a phone call from a local TV station that there is a discussion in the White House about starting a Muslim registry in America. And that was the saddest day of my life. I don't know how I'm going to respond. So I went on television, the question was asked and I responded back by saying, look, I came from India 40 years ago And I gave up my Indian citizenship 25 years ago based on what this country offers. So singling out a minority-based religion is not what America is all about. As I was describing, I got emotional and a thought came to my mind. And I said, but I like the idea of starting a registry that will bring people together, regardless of their ethnicity, color, religion, or even political affiliation." I said, I'm announcing I'm going to start a movement called Anti-Hate Registry, because I'm concerned about what would happen over the next several years. It's not just going to be the White House in the Muslim community, it's going to be the White House and the Jewish community. So that's how this movement started. And the next day when the program was aired, I got 500 emails from people who watched me, and they signed me up. That's exactly what's needed to bring this country together. What we do typically is that This is a nonprofit, nonpartisan. So I created an advisory board of people representing different communities. And then the focus was mainly education based on my experience with 9-11, how important it is. A lot of people are reacting out of fear, confusion and hate. And so engagement was very critical. So what we do through this movement is we have educational programs and it is empowered by students. And the way we do educational program is a real life stories of people. So you name, you look at all the former head groups that are all on our board, we take them to classrooms and communities to build unity. The other part we do through this is a nonpartisan program about policy, because that is so critical that elected officials of both parties have to come together to condemn these kinds of things and make sure this country remains united and not divided.
2: Do you generally work with youth or do you also work with adults? Is that, is it sort of a range?
6: We work with everybody. The reason we want to engage youth is because we want to empower them. And when we share our stories, what we learn, it resonates with them quite a bit. And since we want to empower them, they have taken the leadership role of starting chapters. of We are many United Against Hate, so there are several chapters. When they decide to start a chapter, we ask the principal of those schools to assign two to four students from that school to serve on our Student Ambassador Board. I think that we strongly believe, and we are mainly united against hate, that engaging the student at early stage is critical. Because if you look at all of these former hate groups, most of their target is youth. So we want to start it from the very beginning, and that's where our movement is grassroots. We are engaging them early on.
2: It sounds like your primary goal is youth outreach, something that Steve, who is on your board, also prioritizes with the Madison Lawyers chapter of the American Constitution Society. So Steve, can you tell us more about how youth engage with this program and how it might be related to Masood's program as well?
3: I have a connection with Masood going back to 2016 because I was one of those who responded immediately to the call, actually through my church. But I've also been a civil rights lawyer for 40 years. And out of that interest, became involved with the American Constitution Society, which works very hard to make our justice system accessible, fair, and promoting the interests of all diversity, of whether it's racial, ethnic, or economic, or even political. As part of that, ACS has a, a national program that provides a curriculum that is packaged and can be provided and made available to schools targeted at various levels whether it's elementary or middle school or high school and th- that has been one of the priorities of the Madison Lawyers chapter along with trying to provide commentary on a progressive perspective on the law and promoting democracy and and of course promoting democracy in the schools to school children is is critical for the very reasons that Masood mentioned so we we have partnered with United Against Hate on an initiative of Samba Balda represent state representative who put together a sort of a youth legislative day at the Capitol. We participated in that by providing ACS materials about democracy, about how the government is designed to work. I guess the key feature of that being how the government is designed. And this, I mean, the unique experience of this country is that the government answers to the people. And we want to make sure that students understand that that gives them a responsibility as when they become adults to participate and to make sure that our system does respond to the people as it is supposed to. And of course, democracy is the primary mechanism that we use for that. And, And so we try to promote that at every opportunity that we have. And we were delighted to participate with United Against Hate on that.
2: So when it comes to your education program on the legislative process for youth, was there a specific event that inspired you, Steve, or was it over the course of your career noticing a need for that sort of outreach?
3: Well, I've perceived a need for that throughout my career and and even before that when I was a student. When I was a student, I'm old enough that I remember we had civics classes and we, we learned about the branches of government and how they the separation of powers and the and how a bill becomes a law and the principles of democracy and I have the suspicion that it's not hasn't been emphasized as much as it used to be when I was a kid. And I'm really delighted that ACS has professionally designed curricula and tools that that we can make available to the schools.
6: One other thing I can mention is, Steve, you know, I get lots of phone calls from overseas students who come here in the United States. Quite often they share rooms with those who are born in this country and they sit together, talk to each other. Quite often they call me. And then they would say, you know, I'm living with these people who are born in this country. I can tell you, I know a heck of a lot more about the U.S. (laughs) Constitution than these people do. So I think we take something for granted in this country. And I think it is very important that we need to have some programs like civic education continuously, as you mentioned, Steve. When you were growing up, you know, you were taught a lot more than what we have been taught nowadays. So I think that's very, very important that we need to keep reminding people, don't take things for granted. U.S. Constitution is pretty solid. We need to follow it and continuously do civic education. I think that's very critical to build the unity.
2: Masood, you mentioned that you've already had some students form their own chapters of United Against Hate. But I was curious, in general, what sort of response do you get when you go to schools?
6: so far the response has been overwhelming for example the very first event in 2016 that we did at monona terrace we had 500 people attended that and we invited the students and we have only one focus we have a farmer white supremacist who changed his life completely changed now he's promoting peace we have him on our advisory board another person whose dad was killed by the same group that arno started we invited those guys to come and talk and share their personal story. Why somebody started the hate group, the target person who dead, was killed, and how they got together, and then started promoting peace as well. Got that, and four weeks later, I got a call from Mount Horowitz School teacher, and they said, hey, I want to talk to you about two of my students went to your event and attended the whole three-hour And after they came back, they shared the flyer that you have. And this is what they said. After listening to Arno and Part B, our life completely changed. And call this organization in Masood to bring those guys back to Mount Harvey School so all 800 students can listen to the same message. Those two students were the first who we recruited on our student ambassador board. So that's the kind of message and the response that we get from these students. When they listen to these real life stories, their story change and they want to make a change and they keep themselves as a nonpartisan and they, they talk to community people, they talk to parents and other and promote it. And now what they're doing and not only what they're doing in their classrooms, but now they're coming up and they are saying, I want to promote the same thing what I'm doing. So all other students in other schools can do that. Now, I think that has led into there was an event that was sponsored by the US Department of State two years ago in Madison. They asked us to organize the event, being started, you know, invited a student as well who participated. I can tell you, these delegates from Africa, Middle East, and, and Europe, they listened to them. And once they returned back to their country, it resulted into five <laughs> overseas chapters at the school's level. So that's the power when students are engaged in a nonpartisan way and then they listen to the story and then they start sharing it. That makes it even more powerful.
2: And Steve, how do the kids respond to the Youth Legislative Day? And in general, how do they respond to your work?
3: I think kids are, for the most part, very idealistic. There was a period in my life, for example, where um, I became very disillusioned when I found out that there are lots of ways in which our government and our society does not live up to those ideals. And, And so what I try to emphasize to the kids is that, you know, when the constitution was written with its flowery language about all men being created equal and the constitution being to promote the general welfare for all people, we have to remember that at the time of that writing, the political opportunity to vote and participate in, the, in democracy was reserved to landed white gentlemen.
2: So I don't want to keep the two of you too long, but I was wondering if there was anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
6: Well, I think the most important thing right now is what we are seeing in this country. Everybody has the responsibility to reach out to elected officials of both parties they see something they should ask them to condemn, engage them and, and work together to make sure because there is no second America.
3: We have to emphasize the fact, I think more than ever, I'm 74 years old, I've never been as fr- afraid for our democracy in my whole life. I had always just assumed that our democracy, yes, there's crazies and there's hate, there's dysfunctional things happen, but our democracy is strong enough in, to land on its feet. But now I realize, you know, we can't just trust in that. We have to take responsibility for that.
2: Thank you for joining me, Steve.
3: You're very welcome. Thank you for having us.
2: Thank you, Masood, as well.
6: Thank you very much. Excellent.
2: That was
1: Masood Akhtar of We Are Many United Against Hate and Steve Porter of the American Constitution Society.
0: It's now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us this evening.
1: On this edition of Framing Culture, feature contributor Jose Carlos uh, Texiera sits down with Trent Miller, a local fine artist. Together, they discuss Miller's personal work, his curatorial endeavors, and the fundraising events that he's organized in the past.
4: framing culture i am at the madison public library and today i have a special guest
7: hello my name is trent miller i wear many hats one of them is the head of the bubbler program at madison public library Hello, Trent. The reason
4: I decided to approach you is precisely because of those many hats you wear. For those in the medicine area that don't know Trent, he's an artist, a culture organizer, producer, mediator, facilitator. So I would like to know more about it.
7: Yeah, so my background is in fine art. I have a master's degree from Boston University. When I was younger, I was always making things. I was painting, drawing, doing events. In undergrad, I did a lot of events. I organized, I was always doing shows and getting people together to do interesting things. And after grad school in Boston, I ended up in Madison. And in Madison is where things really started to go in an interesting direction, both with my own art, then with my role of actually connecting people in the community. So that's what I find very interesting about
4: what you do and sort of your social practice, so to speak, because you have to constantly navigate in between your more personal art practice and then your sort of community work right so how those two connect or don't connect can you can you talk a little bit about that
7: yeah it's interesting i I have tried to figure that out for many years. And at times I've really tried to separate the two of more what is my personal work and what is my paid job at the library and just my interest in connecting people and doing interesting and sometimes strange things. I think I've come to at this point in my life of really kind of tying a lot of these things together. I do have an exhibition coming up in the spring here in Madison at Garver. And in that exhibition, one of the things I am thinking about is my different roles, right? I've always drawn, I've painted and done a lot of drawing, but it all goes back to drawing. And so, you know, in that exhibition and just in what I'm thinking about right now as an artist, When I want to draw, I want everyone out of my way. I don't want anyone around. I can't have my family around. I need my own space to make these little, you know, these little or big drawings that I'm working on or paintings, but then I just, I'm a person that likes so many different things. I get kind of bored just doing that, right? And so that's why I start to think of ways to kind of expand and to include other people into what I'm doing and what I'm thinking about. Uh, I'm just recalling now a big, big event
4: happened exactly here where we are at the Madison Public Library. MPL went through a huge renovation years back. And so Trent was in charge, responsible for organizing a big cultural event, performances, exhibitions in the space. And so now when people visit Madison Public Library, of course, you have a beautiful design building, but this was the site that sort of skeleton site for that
7: big event, and then the new library open, right? So the event was called Bookless. And what happened at that point, I was teaching part-time at the university and I was working part-time here. And I somehow convinced the administration at the time at the library to let me do an art event. You know, it started small. I put out a call for some different artists and we were just going to do an art show. Well, it soon spiraled as many things do when I start to get going on something, a big project. You know, how big can we do this? What could this be? And so we ended up having over a hundred artists as part of this event. It was a one-day event. We had rock bands, we had DJs, we had drinks and food here. We had a lot of interactive projects. And we ended up raising around $30,000 for the library. Out of We had no budget to do this event. It was very DIY. It was very, let's just, you know, figure this out as a bunch of artists. And we basically took over the empty library between when it closed and before it was renovated. 5,000 people showed up in one day with lines around the building to get in. Oh wow, that is quite quite
4: impressive. And I know that years later, you did maybe a little bit more organized, formal in
7: terms of structure, event at the municipal building. When we reopened the central library, we did an event called Stacked. And at each of these we had you know over a hundred artists involved. and so we built this real network of artists, you know, to to do these big pop-up events, which I love to do. About six years ago at this point, when we did the municipal event, the municipal building was closing down and renovating, similar to the central library. And so I got an email or a phone call from someone in the city that said, hey, uh, remember that big event? It was great. We'd love to do something here at the municipal building. Again, using the materials in the space, working with a bunch of artists. And so we had a huge event that came out of that. And I think one of the biggest things that has happened because of these are, one, we have this huge network now of artists with the Bubbler program that I help oversee. But then I've also seen all these little trickles and ripples of other artists who've met each other through these events who now are doing other projects in the community.
4: Should you say that the one of the most rewarding, let's say, outcomes in these experiences for you it's it's to build that network? Or is there any other aspect that you want to highlight when you organize these big, big events?
7: Yeah, I just love ideas and I love seeing all these, you know, trying to coordinate 100 artists is wildly fun for me, especially in like a a limited time, just seeing the connections that are made between different artists, seeing the community come into a space and think and see that space in a different way. I think when there's still lots of people that come to Madison Public Library, the Central Library or to the Municipal Building, having people have that good experience in that space I think can do something to the space and can make people feel and think about what's possible in different ways. And I remember hearing people
4: uh, praising so much both the Bookless event and now more recently the Municipal as something that, you know, in the city, oh, my God, we never experienced this. This is so new, so fresh. Your energy as an artist and cultural producer is quite, I wouldn't say, unique. Nobody's irreplaceable, but you have quite a charismatic presence in bringing these things together. Were you always like that or something that you discovered later in your life as a human being?
7: I mean, it's interesting. I am, I have always been like that. My mom laughs about it, that I was always, you know, growing up, even in like, as a teenager. I was the organizer, the coordinator, the person getting the people together. It brings me, it really does bring me great joy. It's probably the thing that makes me the happiest in the world is being able to pull these things together, being able to see other people enjoy them. And
4: for those who are listening to us who follow
7: W-O-R-T, they
4: probably have heard also some stories around the Bubbler art residencies. But right now I would like to shift with you and um, you know, from the more public, social sort of phenomenon into your own inner workings as an artist. I remember very well, right before the pandemic was a very cold winter, you invited me to go underneath your house somehow uh, to see an interesting gallery space that you had there with some interesting work. And I remember we connected so much on Tarkovsky and cinema. Anyways, just talk to us a little bit about that facet of yours as
7: an artist and as a, a thinker. The bubbler program has grown so much at the library and we've done so many other things, but it's been harder to do these kind of pop-up events or to have curatorial control over things, right? Like my job at the library is more to look at other people's ideas, help support them. And so I needed some other outlet outside of making my own art. And that became this gallery in my house. The gallery is called One Plus One Equals One, which is from one of my favorite Tarkovsky movies called Nostalgia. In the movie, there is this person that everyone kind of sees like, oh, he's really off. Like we don't, no one gets this guy. And he has one plus one equals one written on the wall. And at one point in in, in the movie, he says, one drop plus one drop makes a bigger drop, not two. He's just seeing things differently it's not that, you know, one plus one equals one is incorrect. He's just looking at the world in a different way. And that has always attracted me. And I've always thought about that, how to see and think about things differently. And I think that's what art does at its best. And so thinking about that, I wanted to set up this gallery space in my basement, which happens to look like an old, there's stone, there's these big wood beams, and it it feels like a Tarkovsky movie. So I set up the space and invited people that I knew. It is underground. It's also so just kind of word of mouth, you know, anyone who can interact with me, I can, you know, I I let them know about the space. A couple interesting things about the gallery. One is that you're not allowed to bring cell phones and there's no photos of the space. So I have a locker where you lock the phone. I just wanted a different experience that you could only have while not having this digital device with you to take photos, right? If you see the show, you see the show. You smell the space. You feel what it feels like to be in that space, but there's not a digital record online anywhere. One of the aspects that
4: fascinated me the most was that bringing back rescuing us from this oversaturated media life uh, into less connected and yet more experiential, more lived experience. We do underground in that space. So we are definitely going through interesting and troubled times for all of us. As adults for sure, but our kids and teenagers are going through a lot of challenges. And I, I think that experience made me think also about this too. And this is it for today. Thank you so much, Trent, for sharing your thoughts and feelings on your social and also personal role
7: in the arts and in culture in general. And thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on and I'm excited to hear this new adventure with this uh, on WRT.
1: And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure.
0: Well, we didn't uh, warm quite as much today as I thought we might, uh, reaching only 42 degrees despite our winds backing to the southwest. Those winds were not particularly strong, however, providing only shallow vertical mixing, so that uh, worked against surface heating. And the near-constant stream of high and mid-level clouds above us didn't uh, do any favors either for the thermometer. So anyway, it's turned out, given that, that we've ended up with a 7-day run now of continuously descending temperatures stretching back to last Thursday, when you might remember it was 64 degrees. And after that, we descended through the 50s over the weekend for the high temperatures, then down through the 40s over these past three days. And sure enough, we're going to now continue down through the 30s over the coming few days as we approach the weekend. Uh, All of which I suppose is uh, kinder in any case than dropping the whole 30 or 35 degrees at once, and we're certainly prone to do that this time of year. Today's passing Cirrus and all the cumulus were being generated along the margin of an approaching upper jet stream out to our northwest, which you can see if you have a look on the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening. It's arcing east-northeastward off of the Pacific Ocean across Washington State and then through the southern prairie provinces of Canada and over towards Newfoundland. Uh, It's actually a bit lackadaisical looking at the moment on the water vapor, um, without quite the intensity or velocity evident in the southern branch of the jet stream that's currently slicing across the deep south. And while the thermal contrast across lower Canada that's helping power that jet hasn't been particularly intense so far, that is in the process of changing as a pocket of uh, quite cold air from the Arctic which is currently visible on that water vapor image as a patch of colder white and green colors over Lake Athabasca in northern Saskatchewan, begins to descend southward towards the uh, U.S. border. That cold blob of air is going to land over southern Wisconsin on Friday, perhaps giving us our first sub-30 degree high temperature for a day. Uh, and dropping dew points down into the single digits, that's where most people begin to feel the air getting uncomfortably dry. So a real Arctic air mass coming in. Uh, we're not going to see much beyond cloud cover, though, during our transition to the colder air tomorrow and Friday, given the fact that the Gulf of Mexico is completely cut off by from us by the jet stream down to our south. We will get a fair bit of wind as the denser, drier Arctic air comes pouring forth behind the initial cold frontal passage later tonight but those winds should begin to slacken by sometime probably later Friday afternoon or overnight as the center of the Arctic surface high-pressure cell begins to edge into the area uh, from the northwest. A secondary surge of cold air uh, following southward on Sunday then may kick up enough upward motion at that time Uh, ahead of it to produce uh, some snow, but uh, with, uh, again, neither gulf moisture available nor apparently any particularly strong organization of the passing trough and funnel boundary on the modeling, Uh, I'm not expecting much of concern that day either. We will see another downturn in the temperatures as we get later in the weekend for at least a day or two after that, and perhaps slightly longer if the Global Forecast Systems model prevails over the less-amplified Canadian and European models. But in any case, there is general consensus But by the end of next week, as we get on into early December, a more uh, El Nino-like upper air pattern may impose itself on the continent, bringing a return to uh, unseasonable warmth, or at least warmth, across the upper Midwest. So we'll see how that goes as it comes. But back to tonight, uh, passing high clouds will continue to cascade south and southeastward across area skies through much of the night. And between those and continued southwesterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour, the temperature shouldn't drop uh, much more than a few degrees uh, into the mid-30s before the winds veer more west and northwest sometime past midnight. Temperatures thereafter will uh, continue to fall down to the low 30s by dawn. Tomorrow, we'll continue to see uh, passing high clouds, and I'm guessing that we may see at least some uh, brief passing cumulus at times during the day as the lower part of the air column cools. Temperatures will struggle back into the uh, middle or upper 30s with the sunshine, but north-northwesterly winds at 10 to 15 miles per hour will prevent the thermometer going any higher than that, I think. The uh, stronger dose of cold air will then be pushing in overnight, uh, dropping the temperatures towards 20 or so on steady northerly winds at 8 to 12 miles per hour, again with a little more than passing high clouds otherwise for sky cover. And Friday will be generally sunny and cold with temperatures returning to about 30 or so, perhaps hanging up in the upper 20s if the passing high clouds that day are a bit too much for the sun. Uh, Either way, Friday will be our coldest day this winter season so far. Uh, Incoming cloud cover overnight into Saturday will uh, govern the overnight temperatures as the northerly winds die off and uh, back more westerly. Uh, We could potentially drop into the upper teens if the skies stayed clear uh, long enough past midnight. Otherwise, I think we'll end up uh, more likely in the low or possibly mid-20s with an uh, earlier advent of incoming clouds. And those mid-level clouds will thicken up more uh, to more of an overcast as we get into the day one, uh, Saturday and start to a little more, uh, and so we start to get a little more moisture return northward ahead of a, the second cold frontal boundary on Sunday. Temperatures will return to the low 30s uh, on Saturday as southwesterly yeah. winds pick up a little bit, up to five to 10 miles per hour. The clouds may thicken enough overnight into Sunday to put down some light snow. And again, I'm not expecting any uh, anything uh, of particular concern here or any accumulations to speak of. Temperatures will again be in the low 30s on the day Sunday, perhaps slightly colder than again as we go into the following week. The temperatures down here at the station on Bedford Street. The temperature is currently 39 degrees. The dew point temperature is 26. Winds are out of the south at 9 miles per hour. Uh, just a few passing mid-level clouds obscuring the uh, waxing moon over the station up at about 18,000 feet. And the barometer's at uh, 29.84 inches of mercury and uh, falling slowly.
1: We go now to November twenty-second, 1963, as Madison responds to a murder most foul. Stu Levitan has the sad details from 60 years ago tonight on this week's Madison in the Sixties,
7: the
5: they melt into a dream. Madison in the Sixties Death of a President, Wednesday, November twentieth, nineteen sixty three. President John F. Kennedy begins his last full day in the White House with a Western Union telegram to UW-Madison President Fred Harvey Harrington. Kennedy congratulates the UW Orthopedic Children's Hospital on that afternoon's dedication of the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Memorial Laboratories, funded in part by a quarter-million-dollar grant from the Kennedy Foundation. The president salutes lab director Dr. Harry Weissman on his efforts, quote, to conquer the vast field of mental retardation and its attendant problems. The president also sends his youngest brother, Senator Edward Kennedy, and brother-in-law Sergeant Shriver, the Peace Corps director, to tour the lab and hold a dedicatory luncheon at the Memorial Union. It's personal to the Kennedys. Their eldest sister Rosemary suffered a botched lobotomy when she was 23, and has spent her life institutionalized at the St. Coletta School for Exceptional Children about an hour east in Jefferson. It's unseasonably warm and humid on Friday the 22nd, high of 60 with a chance of rain. Madison wakes to find the president's political trip to Texas front-page news. Large crowds, but some catcalls in Houston and San Antonio, with Dallas on tap for today. A little before noon, about 800 festive Badger boosters board a special Milwaukee Road train bound for Minneapolis and the UW-Minnesota football game. Eleven months after their thrilling Rose Bowl loss, Milt Bruhn's boys hope to salvage a disappointing season by at least keeping the Paul Bunyan axe. Then the Bulletin from Dallas. David Marinus is in a class at West Junior High School when Principal Homer Winger makes the announcement. Growing up in one of the few liberal families in his neighborhood, Marinus is taken aback by how his classmates react, shrugging the assassination off because, in their words, Kennedy was a commie anyway. The South Side neighborhood served by Franklin Elementary School is different. As classes crowd around a large TV, everyone is crying, even the boys. Everyone is also in tears in Gunnar Johansson's chamber music class in Music Hall, as the pianist, professor, and violinist Rudolf Kohlisch play Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata. Ben Sidron, 20, is at work, sorting records in the basement of Discount Records. There's a calendar on the basement bathroom door, where weeks earlier he had written The Cruelest Month on November's page and drawn Blood Red Daggers on November 22nd. Freaked out, he rips the calendar up and heads for State Street. At 2 o'clock, the UW football team lifts off for Minneapolis by chartered plane. When they land, they learn the Minnesota president has finally agreed with President Harrington to postpone the game, now set for next week on Thanksgiving morning. Harrington also cancels all classes and social activities, with some classes also off on Monday and Tuesday. In the Capitol Rotunda, Owen Rearson is causing trouble again. Out on bail from his arrest in September for disrupting a civil rights demonstration after the bombing deaths of four black girls in a Birmingham church, Reerson loudly celebrates the assassination as, quote, a miracle for the white race. Wearing a swastika armband and giving the Nazi salute, Reerson tries to distribute racist and anti-Semitic literature before he's again arrested for disorderly conduct. Throughout the afternoon, Four campus religious centers conduct special prayer and morning services, with three more planned for the weekend and Monday. The Ratzkeller's crowded but quiet. There's only a hushed murmur as people jam the main aisle and watch TV. By evening, a hard rain is falling. Madison mourns on Monday, the day of the president's funeral, with religious and memorial services from morning to night. There's little else to do. Except for financial institutions, almost every store and business is closed, at least until early afternoon. At 8 a.m., a flag-draped catafalque stands before the altar of St. Raphael's Cathedral, as more than 800 pack the pews and aisles for a pontifical Requiem Low Mass. The Lorraine Hotel sets up some televisions in the lobby. Across the street, another set plays in the Pharmacy of the Wisconsin Power and Light Building a sound system on Capitol Square, blares Patriotic Songs. The Gisholt machine plant is open, but union workers can take the day off. Oscar Mayer workers observe a moment of silence at 11 a.m. Bars belonging to the Dane County Tavern League shut down from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Even the bad guys take a break. During the five hours of funeral and burial, there are only six police calls. The norm for that period is 50. After the burial, at about 2.30, a silent crowd of 10,000 ascends Bascom Hill to seek solace for one martyr in the shadow of another, at the state's official service at Lincoln Terrace. Carillon bells ring, somber and slow. Muffled drums herald the ROTC units. The university choir sings hymns. The marching band plays the national anthem. Harrington and other dignitaries make remarks. Then the benediction, taps, drums beating retreat. The crowd quietly melts away, just in time for the 5 p.m. reopening of the four downtown movie theaters. At eight that night, more than 1,500 overflow the First Congregational Church for a multi-denominational service. Something is wrong in our land, Reverend Alfred Swan declares, we rely too much on violence. Too many weapons are flashed before the eyes of the young. After scripture and prayers, many in the crowd cry as they sing America the Beautiful. Tuesday, the 26th, Dane County Judge William Bensley orders Rearson to the Central State Hospital at Waupun for a 60-day mental examination. For you to derive pleasure and satisfaction from such a wanton act of malicious violence is evidence to this court that you may be deranged, Bensley says. Then Wisconsin officials discover Rearson is on parole from a robbery conviction in California. That night, most campus activities are still canceled or postponed, but some groups do meet. The Young Socialist Alliance has a discussion on, quote, the United States war machine under the administration of President Kennedy. Thanksgiving morning the 28th, the Golden Gophers gobble up the Badgers 14 to nothing. Postscript, February 18th, 1964. Wisconsin extradites Rearson to California in San Quentin Prison, where he resumes serving his sentence for second-degree robbery. He dies in Washington, D.C. in 1986, age 46, the same age President Kennedy was, the third week of November, 1963. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, President Morning listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was Gigi Royko-Maur. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Jose Carlos Texierra and Stu Levitan. Katie Giorgella is our engineer. Faye Parks produced the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.